We are in John 7 this week. John 7, verses 1 to 24. The title today is, What Do You Think of Jesus? Part 1. Because part 2 will be next week. Uh, But it's a long chapter and we didn't want to go through it in two parts uh, or in one part. So what do you think of Jesus? Part 1, John 7, 1 to 24. Uh, Throughout this chapter, though, this week and next week, the question that seems to be asking, that John seems to be asking to his readers is this question, what do you think of Jesus? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he the Messiah? Or is he a menace? With that said, though, though the question of the chapter focuses on the person of Jesus... I think as we go through it, the actual person that's being analyzed is you, is me, the one answering the question. In other words, this story is more about the judgments than you and I make about Jesus and about people in general. So this chapter does more than just expose Jesus to us. It's going to do that for sure. But it also exposes who we are. And what we think about others and what we think about ourselves. So we're going to read the whole chapter, the whole section together. Um, And as we do, I want you to pay attention to the groups that are mentioned throughout the section. And then notice the advice that Jesus gives at the end. Before I read, let me just go ahead and share what I think the point of the passage is seeking to make. You can write this down. The point is this. The judgment you make about Jesus says more about you than it does about him. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths or tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." I shared this story in my life group, so for those of you who were there, I apologize for the repetition. Um, but hopefully, I want to use this story as an illustration for what I think this story is trying to communicate. On occasion, we pray for another church. Uh, it's my friend Josh. He pastors in uh, Legacy City Church in Studio City, LA. And Josh is one of my oldest Christian friends. I met him when I was 21 years old. I was a little over a year old as a Christian when I met him, so please keep that in mind. <laughs> I was just barely a Christian. Uh, I have known him for 19 years now, and again, he's one of my oldest Christian friends. But I must confess, when I first met Josh, I couldn't stand Josh. <laughs> now let me clarify, I hadn't even met Josh, and I couldn't stand Josh. When I was starting to get involved in ministry, I was getting involved in the high school ministry. Again, I was 21 years old at my former church. And this was a ministry that Josh had served in prior to me getting involved. And I didn't meet him. Our paths didn't cross because he left and went on a mission trip to Mexico for six months. And right after he left is when I got involved. So I never met him. But for several months... The first few months that I was involved, all I heard from the other leaders and from the students in this ministry was how great this guy Josh was. I mean, the way people talked about him, you would think that he could walk on water. He was a high school ministry legend, and I was just riding in his wake, and it was pissing me off. <laughs> and then one day, one day, months later, a student who I knew really well, who constantly talked about this guy, Josh, came up to me and said, hey, Josh is back from Mexico. Did you meet him? He's in the back of the room. And I looked, and all I saw, like from here to the back of the room, was a John the Baptist-looking freak. <laughs> if you've seen Forrest Gump, when he was running with his long hair and his beard down to his chest... This guy looked like he was straight out of the chosen. And I thought, I hate this guy even more. What a clown. And as I looked in the back of the room, he's praying with his hands in the air like this and his eyes wide open, looking up as if he's like literally seeing God in the sky. And I'm thinking, what is this guy's problem? Like, who does he think he is? And he's got some juju over all of these people, and it just got under my skin. One day, though, 
I met this guy, Josh. I, avoid, I did not meet him that night. Um, but what happened was weeks later, we were both at a high school retreat. And I, again, I was avoiding him up to this point because he just got under my skin. And, but one day, our paths were unavoidably going to cross. We were at this retreat, and to go from the chapel to the wreck area, there was a bridge. And it was really kind of the only way across. And one evening, I was walking across, and wouldn't you know it, Josh and his posse are coming right at me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to meet this guy. And right, right when he, he looks right at me, he goes, hey, are you Aaron? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh my gosh, I've heard so much about you. I've been wanting to meet you. And I'm like, okay. And from that moment on, he just began to say all these really kind, encouraging, intentional, considerate things. And I mean, it is just, it was wild. And then he looks at me, he goes, the conversation was kind of ending, and he goes, hey, can I pray for you? And I'm like, sure. And he lays his hand on me and looks up to the sky like some freak with his hands in the air and <laughs> prays this awesome prayer. And then, he, and then he walks away, he hugged me, and then he walks away. And I thought to myself, I hate this guy even more. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I thought, you know, who the real clown was, was me. And, and God used that moment to teach me a lesson that if he was going to use me in ministry, then I needed to consider the way that I judge other people. Um, one, one thing I learned is that often the judgments that we make about other people says more about you than it does about them. But here's where this matters and where it matters for our story. It doesn't ultimately matter what you think about me. It doesn't ultimately matter what others think about you. It kind of ultimately doesn't matter what you think about you. What ultimately matters is what you think about Jesus. Because the judgment that you make about Jesus determines the ultimate judgment that he's going to make about you. In chapter 7, there's a lot of judgment occurring about Jesus. And I think this chapter is going to help us make a wise judgment about him. From what I can see, there are three groups specifically mentioned, and we're going to look at all three of them together. Before we do that, let's get our bearings straight and think about the context. Last week, we looked at that controversial teaching of Jesus where he claimed to be the bread of life, and then he told his hearers that unless you drink his blood and eat his flesh, you can't inherit this thing called eternal life. And everyone was like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Many people walked away, including some who claimed to be his disciples disciples. However, Peter's words stood out as a light in this dark situation. In response to Jesus' question, when he said, hey, do you guys also want to leave? Peter said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This was Peter's judgment of Jesus, that he was God, and that he alone possessed the words of eternal life. Life, Despite what others were thinking and doing in that situation, Peter and the rest of the 12 disciples, excluding Judas, of course, they made a correct judgment of Jesus. And at least in that moment, it seems like the disciples did not care what judgments other people were going to make about them for staying with Jesus. 
Eventually they will, but not in that moment. And immediately after that story, as chapter 6 ends, we come now to chapter 7. And John tells us that Jesus stayed in Galilee. This is a little bit outside of Jerusalem, a little north. And John tells us that he stayed there and did not go to Judea, which was the area around Jerusalem, because the religious establishment was there, and they wanted to kill him. We learned this back in chapter 5. Therefore, he stayed away from that area. But it's hard to avoid Judea and Jerusalem altogether. After all, it was the center of all that happened in Jewish life and in the life of Israel. And one of the major feasts was at hand. It was the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, as some of your translations may say. This was a feast that was celebrated every year, and it celebrated the harvest season. And it ran for an entire week, for seven days. In fact, chapter 7 kind of covers the whole week. And on this feast, the Jewish people would commemorate when their ancestors wandered in the desert in tents, and they would celebrate this festival by also living in tents. It was basically like a big family camp in Jerusalem. And they would meditate on the fact that God provided for them and how he guided his people. This was a huge event and festival in Jerusalem. And every Israelite would have made plans to be there. But John shows us that there wasn't just anticipation about this festival. There was some anticipation about this guy, Jesus. And like I said before, it appears as if there are at least three groups in the story. And we're going to use those groups to sort of shape the way we look at this story and the judgments that people make. And we're going to start by looking at his brother's Uh, This is a section I'm calling, His Brothers Judged Him as a Coward. We see this in verses 3 through 9, this bizarre interaction with Jesus and his younger brothers. Now, essentially, they're suggesting that Jesus go and do something. They're saying, if you truly believe you're the Messiah, because you're doing all of these kinds of things up here, why don't you go where it really matters? Why don't you go up to Jerusalem during this festival and make yourself known? After all, everyone's going to be there. The morale is going to be really high. If there was ever an opportunity, Jesus, to make a grand entrance, this this is your moment. This is your opportunity. And in one sense, they weren't wrong. However, as we read on, it appears their motives did not have Jesus' best interests in mind. Since John writes in verse 5 that they didn't believe in him. And it's also kind of weird because they knew that there was a group of people there who would have loved to see Jesus dead, and yet they suggest that he go up during this festival. To me, it seems from the passage that his brothers were judging Jesus, and they were judging him to be a coward. And this is why they didn't believe in him. After all, if you're really the king, Jesus, then why are you hiding over here in Galilee? If you are the real deal, why are you not stepping out courageously and challenging the religious establishment and overthrowing the Roman oppression? Maybe this was the motivation for their suggestion. Why don't you go and make yourself known? And you know what? I think people still do or think similar things about Jesus even today. I was listening to a clip from a well-known podcaster. You probably know who he is. His name is Ben Shapiro. Um, And he was answering a question 
Someone asked him, who do you think Jesus is? And keep in mind, Ben is a devout Jew. And he said that he thinks he was just another guy who tried to lead a revolt against Rome and got himself killed in the process. In other words, he thinks Jesus was an idiot, is kind of how he was made it out to sound. And he would have been correct, Ben would be correct, if Jesus would have listened to the advice of his brothers. But if Ben, as, as he was saying this, I thought, well, if Ben, if you actually considered what the New Testament says about Jesus, and if you actually cared more about the facts than your own feelings, that's a joke, by the way, um, then he would have understood that Jesus was neither an idiot nor was he a coward. But what I appreciate about Jesus' response to his brothers is that though he cares uh, deeply about them, he wasn't going to let their judgments about him change his mission. Look at what he says in verse 6. He, he just responds to them and says, listen, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You see, what his brothers didn't understand yet was that Jesus would eventually go to Jerusalem, and he would eventually make himself known to everyone there of who he is, but it would not lead to triumphant adoration where everybody sees and believes and falls down and worships him. Instead, as we all know, it would lead to a gruesome execution with everyone there crying out, crucify him, and his own disciples abandoning him. Jesus can be called many things, but you can't call the guy a coward. It just wasn't his time yet. Though his brothers weren't convinced of who he was, Jesus never forgot who he was and what he came to do. Thus he tells them, hey, listen, my hour has not yet come. But then he tells them, but never forget, your time, it's always here. In other words, it's never too late for you to stop not believing in him until it is. If your heart is still beating and your lungs are still filling up with air, then you still have opportunity to believe in Jesus just like his brothers did. His hour had not yet come, but theirs was still there. Any time, any moment, they could commit their life to him. And the same is true for us. Jesus was not a coward. Jesus was and remains the most courageous man who ever lived. And when it was his time to fulfill his purpose for coming, he fixed his eyes on the cross and he never wavered once. And he did it so that you and I could walk with him forever. So that even in our own cowardice, we can walk courageously with him. But this is how his brothers judged him. But after that, we read of another group, which John mentions. He doesn't mention specifically by name, but he implies in verses 11 through 13, the crowds, basically the group of people who were there gathered for this feast. And what we see in those verses is that the crowds were split on his moral character. They were split on his moral character. John mentions there was a lot of gossip going on around about who Jesus was. And at the center of this gossip was Jesus' moral character. People wondered, okay, he's doing all these things, but is he good? Or is he bad? And again, their opinions of Jesus said more about them than it did about Jesus. As a general rule of thumb, we need to keep this in mind, never listen to the gossip 
that someone else says about another person that you've never met. Instead, reserve your opinions of them to your own personal experiences with them. I remember years ago, someone I respected uh, was saying, he was saying some really harsh things about another person, and, and this guy was around my age. And, and I really respected this guy, and when he said these things, I was like, man, geez, I guess I'm going to stay away from that guy. And, and it shaped my opinion of this person. And then I actually met this person probably about a year later. Uh, I, I think we were at some sort of event and we just started interacting together. And immediately my thought was like, this is the coolest guy I've ever met in my life. It was like that scene from that movie, do we just become best friends? Like that was the way it felt. And, and then I thought, my gosh, why would that guy that I respect say such harsh things about this guy? He's amazing. And and why would, more, more importantly, why would I believe it about him? And I think I decided right there, I wouldn't let someone else's opinions or statements about someone else shape my opinion about them until I met them for myself. But in this story, the crowd was split. There was a lot of gossip, a lot of murmuring and muttering going on about Jesus. Some saw Jesus as a, as a good guy, and some saw him as a bad guy, but all this gossip was going on, in them. and the people who thought of Jesus as a good person, in general, they would probably listen to him because even if, they said, if he said something kind of harsh, they're like, well, he's a good guy. I guess I can trust what he has to say. But if the person thought that Jesus was a bad person, even if he did something good, they're still thinking, yeah, but I don't really trust him at the end of the day, so I'm not going to listen to what he has to say. What's also interesting, though, is that whether they thought he was good or whether they thought he was bad, at the end of it, both groups says they don't say anything. They don't make their opinions really public because of fear of the religious leaders, which is interesting because they were totally okay with all this judgment going on about Jesus. Let's talk about him. What they didn't want was any judgments being made about them regarding their views of Jesus. So they just, you know, they just stay silent about it. In fact, we're going to see next week what happens with one person who does kind of put himself out there and speak up for Jesus. And all he does is advocate basically for equal justice under the law, and he's reprimanded for it. It's, it's always good to remember that whenever your name is associated with Jesus, when you're claiming to be a follower of his, you will be judged negatively by people. Even if what you're saying is totally true and right and normal and seems common sense, it doesn't matter because you are connected to him. The question is, will you be more concerned about what others think of you or what God thinks of you? These people in the story cared more about what others thought of them, so they kept their opinions to themselves. But they're there was a split. Some thought he was good. Some thought he was bad. And there's a split over Jesus today. They aren't quite sure what to make of him. Most people you interact with, they like some things about Jesus. But then they're like, ah, oh, but he said this over here, or he did that over there, or he didn't do this over here. So I don't know. I don't know if I can trust that guy. Nevertheless, again, whatever someone says or doesn't say, about Jesus, whatever judgments they make about him says more about them than it does about Jesus. Finally, the last section, we see this group, the religious leaders. They're just called the, the Jews there. 
They thought that he lacked the necessary credentials. This was their judgment of him. In the middle of the story and in the middle of this feast, Jesus enters the temple to teach. He told his brothers, remember, I'm not going to go to the feast, but what he meant was, I'm not going to go to the feast with you and present myself publicly like what you're asking or requesting or suggesting that I do. Instead, he waited until they left, and he came to the feast by himself, and he came in private. But when he got there, he couldn't help himself, and he began to teach in the temple. And it says the people marveled at it at what he was saying. And, and they didn't just marvel because of what he was saying. They marveled because he lacked the necessary credentials. They're like, how is he saying all these brilliant things and yet he's never gone to any one of our schools? He doesn't have the degree hanging on the wall. And this makes sense to us, right? Because we, we do similar things. Someone can be brilliant, but then we go, well, hey, where did you go to school? And then they're like, well, I didn't go. And they're like, dude, I'm not listening to you. You're crazy. Or they say, well, I went to this school. Oh, well, but you didn't go to this school. So, yeah, that's really nice and cute, but we prefer this school over here. And we tend to reject people's opinions based on their credentials. Well, you don't have that little suffix in front of your name. Therefore, we won't hear what you have to say. But again, that says more about them than it does about the person talking. And yes, it was true. Jesus did not possess the credentials of the day. He did not go to the schools in Jerusalem and get the degrees that would have allowed him to teach in that way. And yet he does cite his credentials in the story. He's like, listen, my credentials are from these schools. My credentials are from God. And by the way, none of us can claim that. None of us can say that as an excuse for like not getting an education. I've had that like, oh, I just, you know, I got the Bible and that's all I need. It's like, dude, you are dumb. Jesus is, you're not Jesus, okay? This is for Jesus only. He can make that kind of claim. His teachings were not the teachings of a particular school of thought. They were from the halls of heaven. And anyone who knew God, he says, would know that his teachings were sourced in God. These are his credentials. But after this, we see Jesus goes on the offensive. And as he does, keep in mind, he's not challenging his hearers to protect himself, but to expose their double standards. This story kind of ends really interesting. He says, oh, guys, you know the law, and yet you're trying to kill me, which they shove off. They're like, dude, you're crazy. You've got a demon or something. But then he takes them back to that miracle back in chapter 5. And if you weren't here with us, you can look back at that story. When he healed a man who was lame for 38 years, and, and he told him to carry his bed, but he told him to do it on the Sabbath day. And when he went into the temple, the religious leaders, they're like, hey, that's that guy who was healed that was like sitting there for 38 years and like couldn't get up, but he's carrying his bed. Who told you to do that on the Sabbath? And they were all angry because Jesus told him, to carry his bed on the Sabbath. And they weren't rejoicing in the fact that this man was healed. And it says at the end of the story that they sought to kill him because he made himself equal with God. And so Jesus now takes them back to that story. And he's exposing their double standards, the way that they treat themselves versus the way that they're treating him. And he just simply asks them a question. How come it's okay? This is essentially what he's saying. How come it's okay for you guys to circumcise a, a 
baby boy according to the custom and law of Moses. You have to do it on the eighth day. But what if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath day? Well, you're not going to break that law. You'll, you'll do it on the Sabbath. How come it's okay for you guys to do that, but it's not okay for me to heal a man on the Sabbath? How come it's okay for you to wound the flesh on the Sabbath, but it's not okay for me to heal it? What makes you so justified in doing what you do, and what makes you think that you can judge me for the good that I do and call it bad just because I do it on the Sabbath? I mean, it is, this is like, if this was a game of chess, this is like checkmate right here. Where, where can they go? The logic is incredible. But they say this, the only possible answer to the question that they have is this, they think they're better than Jesus. They think they can do whatever they want, but he can't do it. They've already judged him in their minds as a bad person. Therefore, even the good things that he does are seen in a bad light. They are completely self-righteous. They, they think of themselves, put it this way, they think of themselves as immutably good. They can't do anything wrong. And Jesus is irredeemably bad. He can't do anything right. They could do no wrong, but Jesus couldn't do anything right. This is why Jesus challenges them in verse 24, just kind of ends with this main idea. Consider, consider your own biases, your own opinions. Consider those things that shape your judgments of people, and particularly in this situation, your judgments of Jesus. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Friends, the judgment that you make about Jesus says more about you than it does about him. And the reason why that should matter to you is because, like I said earlier, the judgment that you make about Jesus determines the judgment that he's going to make about you in the end. I laugh at this story because Jesus is, in one sense, on trial. These people are judging him, but he's the judge of all the earth. They don't even realize what they're doing. One day, Jesus is coming back. And the Bible says that when he does, it will be a day of judgment. For those who believe, they will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be declared forgiven. It's going to be amazing. While those who don't will be judged and they will be cast away to eternal judgment in hell. But the Bible says, John, in fact, even says just a few chapters earlier, we already studied it, that there already exists a judgment over those who don't yet believe. Remember, this is what he said in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The judgment you make about Jesus matters. The judgment that someone else makes about Jesus matters, both now and for eternity. And keep this in mind, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, remember this, that people are gonna make judgments about you and, and me, and sometimes they're gonna be right. Sometimes they're going to be wrong, but they're doing it because of our relationship with Jesus. 
If they did it to him, they're going to do it to you. But remember this, the only person's opinion that really ultimately matters at the end of the day is Christ's opinion of you. And we can be secure in that. Why don't we pray together and then we'll have a time of communion. God, we come before you and we're just so grateful that you loved us enough to send your one and only son into this world to live the life we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve. Jesus, we are so thankful that you obediently came to live among us and you put up with all of this, all of this judgment and criticism and antagonism and suffering and all of these things. You put up with all of that your whole life, everyone misunderstanding you and ultimately abandoning you. You put up with all of that in order that we might have the opportunity to believe and to be forgiven and to be reconciled in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Thank you for doing all of that for us. Help us for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus to walk with you courageously, knowing that you have already won the victory, that you have already assured us of acceptance in your incredible kingdom, and that at the end of the day, the only person's opinion that matters of us is you, and how we don't want to be pleasers of man, but those who please God in our lives. God, help us to be these kinds of people. Lord, for those who have yet, or maybe who are still making judgments about your son Jesus, that, that he is not Savior, that he's not Messiah, but instead they're, they're not sure about it, or maybe they've already judged him as a bad person, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would invade their hearts and minds and help them to see the truth of their errors and believe in him and receive eternal life. Certainly, we all have people in our lives that we can think of that are in that place, and we pray, God, that you would reach them. We pray all this in Christ's name.